Welcome to MI Cynic, the podcast with a license to inform. This is your host, Thomas Brancato. Today I have the honor of welcoming back Mr. Marion Duris to finish our conversation on the challenges faced by the European Union in 2021. Marianne is a foreign policy advisor and consultant to a member of the European Parliament and a foreign policy expert. He's got experience in international relations and the security sphere here in the United Kingdom and abroad. His education is based on engineering, but he's also got certifications in geopolitics, geostrategy, security analysis, strategy and organizational psychology. Hi, Marianne. Thank you so much for joining us today. Let's talk about the V4 bloc, which is a central European bloc of countries, former former communist countries. There has been pressure in the last few years to accept migrants from Middle East and Northern Africa, uh, as Germany did. It was an approved program of help for Afghans in this case, uh, and increasingly now in the media due to uh, the civil unrest that's happening as the Taliban fights uh, the government uh, ahead of the US withdrawal. And these Afghans who work with Czech troops during their deployment in, in NATO missions, now the V4 countries are being asked to, to host migrants coming in from Afghanistan and, and of course other parts of, of the world as well. Has this caused tensions in the V4 bloc? And how does this play out with the, with the history of these countries being, of course, that they were behind the other side of the Iron Curtain in the Cold War. How do you see it, Marian? Mm, this pressure of uh, European Union on countries to accept thousands of migrants from Sub-Saharan Africa, the Middle East and South Asia has been around for several years, so this is nothing new. Uh, the only difference is that they used to call it mandatory quotas, and today they hide it behind positive uh, slogans about responsible solidarity, humanity, etc. Decision of the Czech government to import Afghans who cooperated with Czech or NATO soldiers in Afghanistan is quite an topic, and it's not part of this pressure. All data are secret for citizens. They can't uh, now how many and what kind of people, what's the cost, and to where the Czech laws will apply to them. Uh, I and a few people from analyze the sector. We see it as a dangerous precedent, uh, not only for the Czech Republic and the safety of Czech citizens. There are no security checks, no assurances. For more people accepted by the Czech side are considered as traitors by the Taliban on the rise. And those who are a little familiar with the customs of Middle East, they know that betrayal is not, is not forgiven, no matter uh, where the individual is and with whatever identity. So the story here seems to be that the smaller, weaker, poorer nations of the European Union must accept the wishes of Brussels. And they may not have many choices when it comes down to it. It, it almost seems like a story of bullying from Brussels to, these, to the V4 bloc and others. But I wonder if this is not also the case for smaller provinces within richer countries and whether smaller villages and towns, for example, here in, in England, have much of a choice when it comes to what parliament decides. Is it the same story in Europe? How much of this is based on, you know, an understanding that, okay, the European Union should be at this perfect confederacy in which all countries are treated effectively as countries rather than members. 
And how can this dichotomy be resolved? Will it eventually be the case of the destiny of the European Union is to become a super nation? And, uh, you know, to hell with Poland and Bulgaria, you either accept it or you get out. Or is this part of a, a momentary struggle by which the European Union eventually remembers, no, we are a confederacy of equal states. But can it be that when compared to a, a world in which China is increasingly more powerful and dominant and Russia keeps looking at ways of cracking into the European Union with different kinds of uh, alternative warfare, misinformation, malinformation, etc., etc. Are we only creating a weaker European Union by insisting on the equality of, of smaller uh, member states? What is your opinion on this, Marian? The struggle is not, it's not only for this moment, the struggle will be, will be for more years. From the view of point of rampaging neoliberalism, Central Europe lags uh, behind Western Europe, but the nations of Central Europe uh, have already had to deal with ideological crisis during the Second World War and Cold War. So because of this historical experience, Central Europe is very sensitive on pressure of new forms of ideologies what are gradually and slowly occur in their, in their environment. The territory of Central Europe separates the East and the West, lies on the border of Latin and Orthodox Christianity, has many languages, national cultures, and the huge historical experience with uh, totalitarian ideologies what distinguishes it from more Western regions. There exists a certain common cultural distinction, a certain way of life, specific need to preserve its values and traditions. And I think that the effort, uh, effort of every reasonable person, wherever in the world such a person lives, should be self-preservation, preserving and protection of the own language, culture, identity and traditions of their own family, village, region and country. And it seems to me almost that this this clash that is happening between Brussels' wish to create a more unified, a more harmonious European Union under the rule of the stronger countries, you know, the, you know, the so-called Franco-German engine of the European Union, sort of deciding to create a super state of Europe, is clashing a bit with the smaller countries of Central Europe that are, as you say, perhaps lagging behind and seeing that they have to accept everything that is handed down to them at once, perhaps, and having a history that was different, not as liberal as the rest of Europe. And this antagonism that's being created is perhaps the reason why we are seeing a rise in, in all of these worrying things that you have listed, such as uh, far-right nationalism, uh, left-right violence, uh, a return to traditionalism, uh, religion, whatever it is. But let's talk about that. Let's talk about the security of Europe in this decade. One of the things that worries me is the rise of teenage terrorism. Uh, Norway convicted a teenager to five years in prison for terrorism in, in late June of this year. And this is joined by several other high profile cases of, of youth committing terrorist acts or planning to do terrorist uh, attacks. This is joined by as well far, the rise of far right nationalist terrorism where here in Britain, MI5, our internal security service, reports that uh, one in five investigations are already due to extreme right terrorism 
as opposed to, for example, Islamist terrorism or anything else. Um, this is also joined by left-right political uh, violence, and the United States is a good example, perhaps, of, of the rise of that as well. And Colombia, that I've recently spoken about in a previous podcast, is also a case of this. So will Europe be the next case, and will Central Europe be the hotbed of that? Because uh, I think you say about the fact uh, when you said about Norway, Norway is Norwegian, the uh, fact that uh, Norwegian court has sentenced a Syrian teenager to five years in prison for planning a terrorist act in Norway by using poison or explosives and for having supported the Islamic State extremist group. The court ruled that juvenile punishment was not applicable in the case and that there is a risk of recurrence and that imprisonment is required and imperative. Yes, it is, it is sad, but these are the consequences of the mass migration of people for whom we do not have a chance to find out their background, their past, uh, their age, and therefore to estimate the risk they pose. These are the consequences of naive naive policy of those who think uh, Europe can accept and save the whole world. I know many great people, my friends from the professional field, mostly much older than me, who came to Europe from completely different regions, live here or have lived for several years, have done a great job and have been a certain even intellectual contribution. They came modestly and made a huge effort to be successful but they came individually, not with a million others. Uh, with the current mass style of immigration, there can be seen less effort to integrate. Rather, there is a tendency to create uh, parallel societies, states within a state, and this is dangerous. Uh, what about topic of far-right national terrorism and, and report of MI5? Yes, I heard about, I, I think it was before months that uh, when MI5's chief had talking about the rising trend of radicalized teenagers becoming engaged in the right-wing terrorism across the UK. And I was really surprised when he talked about the rate of 20%. But the letter I spoke uh, to a former colleague who was researching this report and told me that much of this threat falls into the virtual realm, so not as a part of some physical threat. He also reminded me that uh, this group of crime or group of, group of uh, extremism has received more media attention than other threats, which are much more urgent. Uh, but we cannot exclude any eventuality. And uh, if we say about left or right political violence, as you said uh, about cases in America and Colombia, of course, we must reject this kind of violence and this ideologically radical and violent group must be punished uh, accordingly. I think it is very good to examine the roots of these movements, who supports them, who they support, what their intentions are, and so on. Sometimes we see these radical and extremist movements and the groups of activists as a kind of branch of various political streams and ideologies that want to physically and violently intimidate uh, their opponents. This is very dangerous for social cohesion or values such as freedom of speech, freedom of thought, religion and beliefs, free debate and, and free political competition. Yes, Marion, thank you. And uh, as you were speaking to me, I was reminded of the fact that despite the fact that we are talking about 
the different stresses of the European Union, the different fractures that are happening, not only because of COVID, but Brexit and uh, mass migration and Central Europe. One thing that I think is evident and and deeply applaudable for the European Union is that in these 60, 70 years of its existence, what it has done is, in a way, if not unify political Europe, it has created a sense of Europeanness. And when that is achieved for a continent that has seen some of the worst wars in history, what you are doing is you're creating, in a way, a, a default, a baseline solidarity that ideally should protect against the excesses of the extreme left of the extreme right. And hopefully that will mean that this is something that our region, our continent may not have to deal with uh, as much or certainly not deal with the consequences as severely as United States, Latin America, Russia, etc., and other parts of the world. And it might just so happen to be due to the fact that the European Union has been central in building a, a consensus and a certain degree of Europeanness among the members of Europe, a solidarity, a brotherhood, a shared sense of purpose, a shared sense of identity. And, uh, and this is something very, very positive that has avoided war, that has avoided discrimination and hatred amongst ourselves and has rewarded the thinking that we are in this together in a way, despite Brexit and despite all the other things. And I hope that that European Union can continue on that trajectory and that this can be a, a vaccination, if you will, against the extreme political violence. But let's talk about uh, mass migration, because I think mass, if there is one thing that can actually threaten what I've just described is when you have mass migration. Why? Because as you've pointed out earlier, you are inviting many different peoples from conflictive parts of the world that may not necessarily share this education, this upbringing, this culture, this shared sense of purpose and values and culture and whatever it is. Now, I'm not necessarily saying these things can't be taught or learned, but it will take time. The German experience has been showing something perhaps a bit different. It has been showing that many migrants may not necessarily be willing to learn a new language and that there have been police reports of incidents, especially uh, regarding the treatment of women and other such things. I'm wondering whether this, this German experience has shown that actually if we don't manage this mass migration very, very, very cautiously, that we risk tearing the social fabric that has held Europe in peace for so long. How do you see not only the security situation of Europe, but the social fabric of Europe, uh, keeping in mind uh, what I've just been describing, uh, how that relates to, the, to this mass migration? I will mention just a few facts here. In October 2015, Bundesagentur für Arbeit, it is a German federal employment agency, estimated in official document that over 80% of migrants have no qualifications and the agency expects 400,000 new benefit claimants next year. July 2016, 74% of new migrants to Germany in that year had no qualifications and they are able to do only menial labor jobs. It is again official information from same federal employment agency 
cited by a magazine developed in article Merhai der Flüchtlinge nur für Hilsjob geeignet. December 2017. Migrant unemployment continues to be a major problem with the district of Salzlandkreis, seeing only 4% migrants registered at the job center, able to find full-time work, Mitteldeutsche Zeitung reports. Still one time important thing. In total, the German government spent 22 billion euro on migrant programs only in 2016. And we can expect uh, similar numbers in next years. And it should be added that a large part of this money goes to subsidizing jobs. And if there are no subsidies, there will be no jobs. I really respect every person who works hard and wants to be a positive element for society, but it's, uh, it's up to Germans and they have to decide whether the positives outweigh the negatives, which we can see in sexual assaults in Cologne, stabbing in Würzburg, or in risky zones in Essen, Altenessen, Berlin, Charlottenburg, Kreuzberg, Pilsenkirchen, Duisburg, Marxloch, and so on. So Germany and its citizens have to decide if they want to go that way or if they decide otherwise. Yes, and it seems that so much of this comes down to a, a public opinion's PR debacle. I'm not sure what the public opinion in Germany is. I would imagine now that as Angela Merkel is going to be leaving, that the German opinion during all of this time since the, uh, the accepting of thousands of migrants has considerably shifted. That seems that's the opinion that I would have, not only because of the statistics that you've that you listed down, but because fundamentally what we have failed to see is an adaptation process. And um, and this is, for example, very evident in, in some areas of Paris or London, the so-called no-go areas of London or some streets in Paris that have absurdly high incident cases of crime. And I wonder if the V4 countries and Germany in particular are seeing this happening in, in their own cities and their own countries and thinking, Christ, you know, we don't we really don't want to end up like that. We really don't want to have a Berlin that is full of no-go areas and crime infested, uh, whatever it is. I know that a big problem now in Germany is, is mafias that are run uh, specifically by foreign nationals. And one of the reasons is, uh, that has been cited is because they're uh, simply willing to do a, a lot of um, a lot more misdeeds. They have a lot less inhibition towards violence in many cases, and they become uh, mafia, organized crime bosses, and the rest of it. So these are these are very worrying trends, and they're very politically charged trends because we also live in a time that sort of the politically correct line from not only a lot of these national governments, but also the European Union itself, is bury your head in the sand and uphold very lofty ideals, very, very holy moral ideals of, uh, you know, we accept migrants and we believe in, you know, uh, in different diasporas being able to settle in and learn languages and become perfect uh, members of society, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, of course, the reality shows it's not been the case, but it's almost very difficult to start this debate when one side of it is completely unwilling to engage in the debate whatsoever because it's, because it's, it's such a moralistic matter for them. So how do you how do you think that will be resolved in the future? Will 
will the uh, will the left of Europe uh, keep keep insisting that uh, the stats and the data doesn't matter? It's all a matter of where the morals should be and where the value should be, and Europe should always welcome and accept uh, people from anywhere. Um, or will there eventually be a moment of reckoning for Europe in which both sides can be listened to and an agreement can be reached and limits can be set? Yeah, when, when you told about Paris and London, so I want remembrance. Uh, it was a year, I think, 2016 or 2017, when the expert group of my colleagues was asked to create an intern analysis for the London area and security level of its zones, and I also took part. We did uh, such a good job of mapping different areas with a great accuracy that we were later invited to analyze Paris. Again, with uh, regard to demography development, and origin of crime, incidents, and intensity of uh, less or more violent events, potential for the future, and so on. And the tendency was very obvious. The domestic population is coming under gradually increasing pressure, often physical, which can also add in departure, moving to safer, rather smaller towns or villages, or even to other countries. Of course, uh, it depends on place of living. But we see examples. Uh, yesterday, a Rwandan uh, national martyr, the Catholic priest in France again, there were cases of uh, beheaded teacher, Samuel Petty, Catholic fathers, uh, Jacques Hamel, François Murat, and the list goes on and on. I think we can say a little prognosis that in the time horizon of 20, 30 years, a new type of migration wave is not ruled out at all. And it will not be wave like today. It can be the citizens of Western European countries and towns moving towards Central and Eastern Europe where our borders more secured. But I still have the hope that the citizens of European countries will regain the instinct of self-preservation, choosing the parties and governments and leaders that will truly protect their families, prosperity and security. Well, it's certainly very interesting to think of uh, Western Europe uh, scrambling to go to East to Central Europe. Uh, you know, you never know. The world will be very different in 20, 30 years. I think the climate situation in 20, 30 years will force a lot of uh, migration one way or another, and it may not necessarily be by choice. So we will we will have to keep in mind how, how far away 20, 30 years is. And, and just reading the IPCC report uh, that was recently um, published, it's uh, very worrying stuff. But... Um, I think another thing to consider is how COVID-19 has stopped a lot of migration anyway. And considering how the debate has evolved and shifted in Europe towards a lot less of an idealistic stance uh, such as Angela Merkel took, and I'm seeing now personally, I believe that uh, the debate in Europe has shifted a lot more to the center ground and it has become a lot more acceptable in many social situations to doubt whether uh, accepting uh, thousands of migrants, uh, for example, in Germany and elsewhere was a good idea. I think if you had said this in 2016 or 2017, uh, people might have, you know, might have taken offense to that statement. But nowadays in 2021, 
with everything that has happened and with how we have seen uh, these processes play out in, in Germany and etc. I think now it's perfectly acceptable in most social situations and with even people from, from the left to say, do you know what? I don't think we handled migration the right way. I don't think it was a good idea. And because that debate has shifted, I think as the world recovers from, co as Europe recovers from COVID, I see it as very improbable that we will have another bout of mass migration being accepted uh, by Germany, Italy, France, and others. However, the question remains, what do we do in the future with the communities of mass migration that have already settled here in Europe, but have not necessarily learned the local language or uh, adapted to the way of life, but rather have created enclaves, if you will, of you know, cultures from wherever they come from, and perhaps their opportunities in life as a result of that are a lot less, which breeds poverty, which invites uh, looking for perhaps crime as an alternative, etc, etc, etc. What I'm concerned about, Marion, is that Europe, beyond the European Union, all of Europe, only works if we all agree together, if we all agree together on what we are, what the values are, and what the future for the continent might be. What concerns me is when we have these tearing of the social fabric and when suddenly we have segments of society that don't agree on the most basic of understandings between us. You know, the point of this podcast is not to decide who is right and who is wrong, rather to give a platform to legitimate points of views. And the only way, if there is a way, that Europe will find itself in a position of strength in the future is if it can listen to its left wings and its right wings and try to come at a point in the middle between them. For that, Marion, I wanted to thank you very much for uh, you talking to us today and for sharing your wisdom and your knowledge. And I hope we'll be able to see you again for our next episode. Thank you very much. And, and I, I, I fully agree with you and with your opinion that uh, we, must, we must unite what about about uh, some important topics about Europe and I hope that uh, European officials will not have some some tendencies to make a qualified majority voting uh, in voting about important things and there will be there will not there must be consensus in in many many ways thank, thank you very much thank you and I hope you'll stay with us for the next episodes that we've got planned Please remember to follow us on LinkedIn, Facebook, YouTube, and more. And of course, to check out our website for the latest episodes. Thank you so much and have a great day.